The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. In, in 1953, my last, next to last year in college, I read The Adventures of Oki March of our soul bellow. I'd never read anything like it before in my life. Who had? Uh, uh, the, in a way, I had read something like it, I should say, when I read the books by the half-genius Thomas Wolfe. But Bella was a whole genius. And so he, the, the gush, uh, the gush in Wolf, the, uh, as I said, the taste for an epical existence, the, uh, the, the portraits of people, uh, all of this Bella did marvelously. But the influence came not through the literary genius, but through his subject. Um, and his subject were Jewish, were, were Jew. They were Jews. These people, um, and not all, not all of them, but the, the Chicago people, and 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 Augie himself, and um, you could write about Jews like this. Um, you could write about your neighborhood like this. Um, you didn't have to write like Conrad. You didn't have to write like Henry James. Um, but he was seizing hold of Jews and their lives and turning it into wonderful, wonderful literature. That was a revelation to me. I was a, a college kid. Okay, that's Philip Roth talking about his literary relationship with Saul Bellow. We're going to be looking at some great duos today, great literary duos. Will those two make the list? We'll find out. What makes a great literary duo? Is it two characters in love? Two bitter rivals? Two best friends? Or is it two authors who challenge each other, support each other? a mentor, and a protege. I'll have the president of the Literature Supporters Club here to discuss. That'll be coming up. Another literary draft we'll explore, or we'll try to get to the top 10 literary duos of all time. Our picks. Actually, our draft this week went a little long, so we're going to do this in a couple of parts. We'll have the first part today. Part two will be forthcoming. We also, Mike and I, also answer some listener questions at the start. We had a professor of literature email us with a question about her syllabus. We'll get to that. But before we do, I need to address some news. This is a, a little segment we call... Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition my condition was in. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually what we call it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah what condition my condition was in segment. <laughs> that's not the full title, I guess. Maybe that's the full title. Short title can just be the condition. It's not about my condition. That's a drug song. That's how that started out. LSD, checking out your own condition, condition your brain was in. I'm talking about something different. Condition our nation is in. Several of you called an article to my attention. You wanted to know, what does this say about us, Jack? What does this say about the condition of our national soul? But first, let's sell some fish. Oh, wait. What's this show? Who am I? <laughs> Who am I? We haven't done that yet. I'm Jack Wilson, and this is the History of Literature. <laughs> This show just keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? It's evolving. Got some more changes in the works. Stay tuned for that. Now, let's sell the fish. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes and that purple podcast app on your phone. If you haven't seen that there, 
click on it. Run a search. It's very simple, easy to subscribe. Might be on, on your iPhone, maybe on your phone. It's different, different color, or on your tablet or your computer. I can't come to your house, people. I don't, I don't know how to set this up. <laughs> I don't know how to set this up for you. You can also find more at jackwilson.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com, historyofliterature.com, and my books. Oh, man, this is the silly season. Don't you hate politicians? Come on. Of course you do. If you don't, turn on the television. Watch five minutes, then get back to me. I wrote a book about this. There was a politician who had engaged me to help him write his memoirs at the end of his long and distinguished career. I I don't know why he hired me. says something about his judgment that he hired me. I guess I was cheap. But for a while there, I had things nobody else knew. It was just me and him. He revealed everything in that memoir, those pages. He was one of those guys who was recovering from a sex scandal, trying to put the pieces back together. He hired me, sent me his, his manuscript pages. It was a book. I tried to make it into a book about redemption. And then I realized that it was also about artificiality, about what politics does to an individual, and it was about hate. I got on a run. There was, <laughs> there was a point where I came up from writing, took a deep breath, and said, every chapter is ending with some kind of rant by a character on how much they hate this guy. <laughs> Poor fellow. That's The Race by Jack Wilson. Reasonably, reason, reason, sorry. Reasonably priced at Amazon.com. It's a short novel. Won't take too much of your time. Okay. Now let's get on to the news and our condition. I think that's why people sent me this article. Multiple people sent this article. I don't know why they sent me this. Do they send this to other people? Or is this just a, a Jack Wilson thing? Am I the guy who... I thought I, thought I was the literature guy. I thought, I, thought I, was, I thought I was climbing towards some respectability here. Nope. Apparently not. You'll see what kind of guy I am. This is the, the article people send me. I guess I'm somebody else. I'm not the lit guy. Current events guy, maybe? State of the world guy? Our national soul guy? Condition? Yeah, oh yeah. I just dropped by to see what condition our condition was in. Here's what the, the news was. A goldfish, an American goldfish, if you're a goldfish, how lucky you are to be born in America. That might be, I know, they're revered in other countries as well. They grow them big in Taiwan. I've seen them. But here, oh boy. If you're a goldfish born in America, guess what? You'll be well treated. Here's what happened. A goldfish, an American goldfish, received plastic surgery to fix its appearance. That's what you guys send me. Look into this, Jack. That was the email. We need you to. We need your take on this. Need. That was the cover email to the story. Who am I to resist? Listener need. I'll do what I can. Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking. Goldfish? They're expendable. No. No, they are not the expendable pet. They are not. Let me tell you a story. Got a friend who had a fish, pet fish. Just one fish swimming around in this tank. Good for the kids. Get them used to having a pet without uh, committing yourself to a, a dog or a cat or a bird. I had a friend who once used to house sit for a friend. They got a bird when their child was in second grade. Their child was off in college. The bird was still alive. 
and lived much longer than the parents had expected. That's a commitment. Fish? Not as much of a commitment, but it's the pet. It's the family pet. Kids fall in love with the pet. Teaches them things, responsibility. It's all good. So, we had a snowstorm in the city where I live. Two and a half feet of snow in, I don't know, 36 hours or something. Everyone was snowbound. It's a good day to stay inside, make sure the fireplace works, the heat works, the television works. Watch a few movies, relax, turn off your phone. Except for my friend. Didn't work that way because when he woke up, came downstairs and his wife said, nodded, dipped her head toward the fish tank, and there was the pet, the pet fish, the beloved family pet. He had expired, floating on the water. So my friend said, well, that's too bad. My wife said, you're going to have to go bury the fish. Proper burial. For Snooky. That's, Snooky deserves it. Snooky was the fish's name. So he said, well, obviously I'm not doing that today. It's two and a half feet of snow out there. She said, what do you mean? And I'm, I'm not going, how can I bury the fish? She said, we're not leaving it in the house, the dead fish. Now, she, as it happens, is a vegetarian. That might be part of it. Most people I know who I tell the story to say, oh my God, you put the fish in the freezer. Or in all the snow, you maybe just pack it in a snowbank temporarily we have a lot of fish sticks in our freezer. <laughs> we're okay with it. Then again, we're not vegetarians. And a pet is different from food. So that was her feeling. So my friend put on his boots. His driveway is full of snow. That's got to be dug out at some point. No plows are going to do that. That's all going to be by hand. He needs to get the car out to get groceries, go to work. All that's in his future. In the meantime, he's trudging out to his backyard to dig out first two and a half feet of snow and then six feet of frozen ground. Well, maybe not six feet. Six inches at least, which means you need a different shovel. So he's got two shovels, one a snow shovel, to make a path and a, a clearing. And then the ground shovel, heavy-duty shovel to break through the, the frozen earth. It's maybe not quite as frozen as it was in The Third Man. That's what inspired Graham Greene to write The Third Man, a beautiful screenplay. Might be my favorite movie of all time. His inspiration for that was when he heard they were digging a grave and they needed to use an electric saw because it was frozen. My friend did not have an electric saw on hand, so he used a shovel, this dual shovel combo, snow shovel, regular shovel, burial shovel. He dug the hole, came back in to retrieve Snooky, Got a little basket that he would use to scoop out Snooky. And he reached down, put his hand in the water, and Snooky started swimming around. <laughs> Snooky was alive. Snooky was alive. It was a miracle. It was like a, a snow day miracle. Meanwhile, that hole in the backyard, <laughs> that clearing in the backyard, all for naught. We care about pets, people. That's the point of this story. We care about pets. On the other hand, 
Plastic surgery might be going a little overboard. We care about pets. Who are we to say that that our goldfish has a nose that's too big, needs rounder cheeks? It's awful. Awful. What are they doing to this fish? That was my first thought. Trying to trying to create a fish in their image or, or to live up to some ideal view of what a fish should look like. Maybe you go over to a neighbor's house. Their goldfish is beautiful. Yours a little homely. What can you do? Call up a plastic surgeon. A fish plastic surgeon. Is that what happened here? What is this, California? I've spent a lot of time in California lately. Some of you know that. I've mentioned that before. Some professional obligations took me to Orange County. Good Lord. L.A., Hollywood. Oh, man. Maybe 50 or 60 trips there in the last three years, something like that. Oh, man. Fly in, fly in with all those L.A. people. Land. Take a car out to Hollywood. Now, some very nice people live there. They're working hard. And some genuinely beautiful people. Just gorgeous. Stunning. I certainly stood <laughs> I certainly stood out. The hotel I stayed in had a lot of industry events, a lot of photo shoots, and I'd trudge through the lobby with my appearance. I I know this is an audio podcast, so you can't assess my appearance. Let me just let me just tell you I my own father saw my photo once. I got a photo for an ID. He took a look at it. He said, you look kind of ghoulish, don't you? <laughs> said, well, that's how I look. It is a photograph. It's not an artist's interpretation. That's me. So, <laughs> ghoulish, my own dad. Thanks, dad. Once I, once, once I had to get a professional photo for work sent us to a professional photographer. And I went with a colleague. The two of us uh, were sitting for our photos. He went, and the photographer, after he was finished, the photographer said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, this is great. He was looking at the result on the computer screen. He said, oh, yeah, this is great. We'll do a little Photoshopping. It'll be fine. It's going to look great. Then he took my photo. He looked at the computer and he did not say anything. And I said, so do a little Photoshopping. And he looked at me and he said, we'll do what we can. <laughs> I did not give him the kind of raw material to work with that he thought <laughs> he was uninspired by what he had to work with. So that's me, a funny Valentine. That's my face. But it's a natural face. That's one thing you can say about it. LA people, some of them, like I said, they're beautiful. And some are not so beautiful. Their faces are distorted. It's like the unhappiness with their own appearance has pushed them, driven them. You know, it might be unhappiness, not about their own appearance, just about themselves. Unhappiness in general. The unhappiness that we all feel, but they feel it more intensely. And they push it toward their face. It all comes out on their face until they have to hack into their face. Cosmetic surgery can be wonderful for some people to reconstruct people who, after accidents or burn victims, that kind of thing. It's amazing that we can do it, but it can also be a symptom of a inner disease, the disease of me, of self-focus, of narcissism. Narcissus fell into the water. He was so in love with himself. Well, actually, he didn't fall into the water. That's not the story. I think that might be the story that gets handed down, but it's it's not the right story. In the, in the actual Narcissus story, Narcissus 
couldn't stop staring at himself. And so he lost the will to live. Is that, is that what you picture happening in L.A.? In Orange County, people staring at themselves? Maybe when they're young, they stare at themselves until they lose the will to live. But then eventually, they don't lose their will to live. They fall out of love with their image. They see things in it. They cannot abide any longer. It's not who they think they are. It's not who they want to be. So, they make a phone call. Get a reference. Right? Go visit a doctor. Write out a check and go under the knife. What is that? What is that? It's so far beyond my little Wisconsin background. I, who avoid tattoos being too permanent, cannot imagine saying to someone, please rearrange my face with a knife. And it's part of the whole image, the surface, their house has to be good, and their car, and their nose, their cheeks, their wrinkles, wrinkleless face, their clothes, and their shoes, and their kids, and their pets. I had a neighbor once who chose a pet because it went with the color of the house. And pets, we care about pets, even goldfish. So if you're somebody who cares about how everything looks, you want your goldfish to look just right. So I got these emails. We need this, Jack. Need, need. We need you to look at this. Lit guy. Or whatever guy. Take a look at the goldfish. Find out what's going on here. And I thought, I know what it is. This is coming from Los Angeles. You've gone too far, Los Angeles. Let the goldfish live. Don't change the goldfish just to look more handsome, more distinguished. So I looked into it. I did, did the research. Was this an actual thing or a hoax? And it was not what I expected. The research revealed everything. First of all, I found out that this goldfish's name was Mr. Hot Wing. Mr. Hot Wing? <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't sound right. That's not a, a name from the OC or from Hollywood. What do people in the OC name their goldfish? Regis, maybe? I don't know. Tesla? Not Mr. Hotwing. And then it turned out my research revealed this was not in California at all. It was in Pennsylvania. Coal country. Steel belt. Not a glitzy place. Mr. Hotwing from Pennsylvania? That's who got the... That can't be the goldfish that, that gets a nose job. This goldfish sounds a little down on his luck. A little hard scrabble. And then I found this article. Headline is... Goldfish born without jawbone... Gets life-saving braces. Yes, it's the same, same goldfish, Mr. Hotwing. This changes everything. This is intriguing. Life-saving. Article begins, here's a sight you don't see every day. A wee goldfish. We. What a nice use of the word we. wonder if this... Author of this article is Scottish. Have you got a wee boy? That's what I heard when I went to Scotland. <laughs> My wife and I took a trip to Scotland, stayed in a and b way out, way out in western Scotland, out on the coast. B&B, little girl came up. Have you got a wee boy? I said, what? 
Have you got a wee boy? The mother explained. Oh, the last guests, apparently. It had a wee boy. Just her age. Someone to play with. At that time, we were childless. Before we had kids. Oh, no. We don't have a wee boy. It was too bad. Made me wish I had brought along a wee boy. A wee goldfish. Not a little goldfish. Not a small goldfish. A wee goldfish. Here's a sight you don't see every day. This is the article again. Here's a sight you don't see every day. A wee goldfish with braces. Braces is in quotes. Braces. Now, maybe this confused some of you. Maybe you just saw this clip, this snippet of this article. And you thought braces, you thought they were doing something with the goldfish's teeth. (laughs) Braces is in quotes. I think this reporter just kind of gave up, didn't know what to call this. Goes on. The fish, named Mr. Hotwing, was brought to Lehigh Valley Veterinary Dermatology last week with breathing and eating difficulties. Ah, this is the cosmetic surgery I was talking about. It's restorative. It's helpful. Not just about appearance. See, people? Maybe this is why people thought they needed me to look into it, because I would do the research and find out this is not this is not what you thought. Back to the article. The Pennsylvania Clinic says the goldfish was born without a lower jawbone, making it impossible for the creature to keep its mouth open. That's horrible. To save Mr. Hotwing, veterinarian Brian Palmero performed surgery, and created a set of custom braces, that's in quotes, crafted from a plastic credit card. Oh, boy. The brace, explains the clinic, helps keep a fish's mouth open, allowing it to eat and breathe normally. (laughs) Is that so normal? Is that so normal? That might be the first misstep. That's the last word of the article. But I have to say to the reporter, Dominique Mossbergen, I question your use of the word normally. (laughs) I don't think it's too normal to be eating and breathing by way of credit card propping your mouth open. Seems abnormal to me. Maybe that's splitting hairs. It's an incredible article. Mr. Hotwing and Brian Palmiero, the hero. This is not soul-crushing. Our condition is not superficiality. This is a miracle. Because... When we care for the little things, the we among us, the weest, then we care for the planet. We heal. And we heal, yes, we heal a, a little goldfish, Mr. Hot Wing. And we also heal our souls. Congratulations, Mr. Hotwing. You should be swimming freely. Enjoy America again. Live on the bounty of this country. And maybe there could be a little tie-in here. American Express, Visa, MasterCard, whatever credit card was used. How about making Mr. Hotwing your spokesperson? Well, I guess not spokesperson, spokesfish. Wouldn't that be perfect? 
to have a little spokesfish, Mr. Hotwing, as your guy. He's got your card in his mouth. I guess spokesfish. I guess he doesn't speak either. Breathe fish. Eat fish. Mouth fish. Mascot. Emblem. You guys know you've got advertising agencies who can do anything you want. Get their creative energy working on this. Here's a slogan. Look at what a credit card can do. Unleash the power. <laughs> it saved Mr. Hot Wing's life. It can save yours too. That's an ad that could resonate. It's better than what it, what's on there now. Good Lord. Unleash the power. It saved Mr. Hotwing's life. It can save yours too, with an introductory rate of just 15.4%. Ah, what a story. Thank you, Mr. Hotwing. Thank you, America. This is your opinion of me. Thank you for explaining so fully. Perhaps these offences might have been overlooked had not your pride been hurt by my honesty and admitting scruples about our relationship. Could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your circumstances? And those are the words of a gentleman. From the first moment I met you, your arrogance and conceit, your selfish disdain for the feelings of others made me realise that you were the last man in the world I could ever be prevailed upon to marry. Madam, for taking up so much of your time. And he walks away in the rain. That's from Pride and Prejudice, of course. Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy. Oh, literary duos. Did they make the list? Let's find out. Here is part one of my conversation with El Presidente himself, Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, joining me for a conversation about great literary duos. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, I'm joined now by a repeat guest. This is Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thanks for having me again. Okay, so we've got another literary draft coming up. Today we're going to be doing great literary duos. But first of all, we have a request from a reader. This comes from Elizabeth in Seattle. She's a professor, and she asked for some advice. She inherited a world literature course. The foundational text for the course is a novel by Salman Rushdie 
called Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights. And it's a, uh, a book that was inspired by the Arabian Nights. And she asked, other than the obvious choice of including Arabian Nights, what, what books would you choose to go on the syllabus? I have to confess, I haven't read much Rushdie other than Midnight's Children and, um, you know, basically whatever is excerpted in reviews of his books. Right. Um, but but uh, I love Midnight's Children. And I think uh, one book that came immediately to mind was Paul Auster's Moon Palace. I think it begins in New York and then flashes back to um, Arizona or New Mexico. And it has fantastic fantastical elements. Right. There is a an obvious move here, which is to look at dreamy books. Paul Auster is a really good choice, or you could even dip into the magical realists, whether it's 100 Years of Solitude or Love in the Time of Cholera, or maybe uh, Isabel, Is, sorry, Isabel Allende is another author I thought of, or Julio Cortazar would have some fantastical tales. So that is a that is a good direction. You could probably have that be a few weeks of your course. Yeah, and, and another another book that might be an intriguing choice is Kafka on the Shore by Murakami. Ooh, great which, choice. Um, I think to encapsulate how crazy that book is, uh, the, the sexiest scenes take place in a library. And <laughs> the, the killer, there's a killer, there's a serial killer in the book, and he's the the figure outlined in black on a Johnny Walker whiskey bottle. Right. So he, he comes to life and he, <laughs> he, he kills people. That's another good choice. I also thought of a couple of nonfiction works that might help frame some of the themes or issues. I think Edward Said's Orientalism or, you know, some of the the essays that have been in response to that work would probably be a good way to ground the uh, Arabian Nights and the, the themes in that discussion. And also the book Reading Lolita in Tehran, which is by a, a oh, yeah. Iranian woman who was a professor of literature. And she's sort of giving things from the other perspective where she's uh, in Iran reading Great Gatsby and Lolita and some of the books from the Western canon. And I thought, kind of doing things in reverse might be interesting for the students. The other, I think Midnight's Children might be interesting to look at. That also has kind of a framing device. Rushdie, I was a little surprised to see that he had written this novel because I thought Haroon and the Sea of Stories was a uh, offshoot of the Arabian Nights. So I guess he's dipping back into the well, but that might be another book to take a look at. And then the other thing I thought of would be other works from the medieval period that have similar stories, uh, a structure where you have a, a reason for stories and then a bunch of disparate stories collected together like Chaucer or Boccaccio's Decameron or uh, maybe some works like that. So I guess you could go more modern too and look at some children's tales, Grimm's fairy tales, um, something like that. There's a lot of different ways to approach this, but it's a sounds like a really interesting course and I, I wish her good luck with it. Yeah, I mean, one note I'll add is that I wouldn't assign all of Orientalism because I, I kind of gave up after about <laughs> 80, 80 pages. And I, I, I like Edward Said and I, I enjoyed the part I read, but part of me just wanted to read V.S. Naipaul or take a break from... Right. You know. There's probably, and actually for a lot of these books, there's probably excerpts that you could pull out, uh, which would be more suitable for a course. There's There must be a good essay. I'm not aware of which one to pick, but there must be. Saeed's been around for so long and has inspired so much uh, criticism and uh, defenses, and there's, you know, backlash, a backlash to the backlash. Uh, there's probably a really good essay that encapsulates all of that. Yeah. A couple other things on my list. Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, wrote a story called The 1002nd Tale of Sherazad. I thought you might... <laughs> That might be worth taking a look oh, at. Wow. Uh, Voltaire was also wrote a, his book Zadig was inspired by the Arabian Nights. And finally, there's a really good essay by Borges, uh, The Thousand and One Nights, which is all about his reading of the Arabian Nights, which should definitely go on the list, I think. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know Voltaire wrote Zadig. Zadig. There's, a, there's a French clothing brand, not to go on a completely random tangent, called Zadig and Voltaire. Right. Leave it to the French. Leave it to the French to come up with a brand like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Let's move to the to today's draft. We'll see how the French do in this draft. Now, this great literary duos. This was a difficult topic. Uh, I mean, it was easy to to come up with a list and difficult to narrow it down. There's so many different angles you could take on literary duos. And the things that kept jumping to my mind and they were sort of wrestling with one another were first books with two great characters. Those literary mm-hmm. duos jumped out at me. And then the other would be two writers who helped or complemented each other in some way. And they're linked through time or something. So I don't know if you had any different angles, but I, I quickly, my list shot up to 26 duos in about a minute. Um, wow. I, I had to pare things down a lot more quickly. I, it, what I did was I made categories and I thought, okay, I'll lump these all into categories and then I'll try to draft of the leading one that I came up with from each category. So I would have this well-rounded list. And then I had, you know, the categories started overlapping and there were subcategories and sub-subcategories. So in the end, I only made things a lot more complicated than they would have been, I think, if I had just, if I had just chosen five literary duos. But Yeah, I, I, start, I started out with things off the top of my head. And then I started thinking about people who were having sex with each other and the, the <laughs> list got really, really big. And then I was thinking of like people who hated each other, but either readers just kind of associate them together or, um, you know, they hated each other, but sort of helped each other by hating each other and spurring each other on. So, and then at the end, I just decided that I, I would, you know, go with my gut reaction. The the list I came up with right, right at first. Right. So, well, sex and hate are two of my favorite categories. So I'm sure I'll be looking forward to hearing <laughs> you, hearing your list. Okay, I'll let you take the first pick. All right. So I I did the easy one. I'll start with an easy one. I did um, Hemingway Fitzgerald. Yes. So let's 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 go over like the big points in the relationship. Um, they were best friends when they first met and then they saw each other like three or four times in the decade. And then Hemingway, there was kind of a one-sided hatred at the end. They meet in the late twenties. Fitzgerald is only around until 1940. He, he was a pretty well-received writer while living, but after he dies, his fame sort of skyrockets and Hemingway in letters, they, they just, they just released volume two of Hemingway's letters. And it's, I thought this was pretty funny. Volume one and two covered up to age 25. So they expect this to be 10 volumes of Hemingway's letters. He, wow. He wrote a letter every other day or every three days. Right. And so there are letters after Hemingway's, after Fitzgerald's death, where he just writes about how he had no respect for Fitzgerald, the only Right, the only living writer he ever liked was Joyce. He, he, you know, he kind of groups Fitzgerald's failure with his marriage to Zelda, and he, he refers to Fitzgerald's talent as lovely, golden, wasted talent. But on the other side, Fitzgerald actually liked Hemingway's writing, and uh, as, as late as From Whom the Bell Tolls, he wrote to him, uh, I, "I envy you like hell," and there's no irony in this. So I, I thought this was, and I think a lot of readers read them in tandem. They, you know, they're both in the 20s. They're, they're kind of, um, if I can call it, light reading compared to Joyce. Right. You know, it's an easy, it's an easy avenue into that era, which is fascinating. You know, they were friends with Picasso. They were friends with Richard Stein. And, I mean, this is like kind of the dream literary circle that people think of, like, you know, the Renaissance or trying to create literary circles in you know, pockets of Brooklyn. I mean, here you had, you know, and there was um, James Baldwin. and You have so many figures there. And among all these golden lights, I think Henry and Fitzgerald were the, the two leading lights. And so to have them have this relationship for Hemingway to be this kind of this bully in this relationship without... Fitzgerald's really feeling the effects of it because Hemingway was a bit cowardly and never really spoke behind Fitzgerald's back. He, he just would write these, you know, these uh, put downs and these letters. I think it's, you know, it's a fascinating, fascinating way to look at the, the, their individual works, which are 
you know, amazing putt to, to think of them as a pair. That's a great choice. It, it is the one that, uh, it's a it's a great number one choice. They are so paired. I can remember people when I was in college saying, are you a Hemingway person or a Fitzgerald person? And there's a way to, a lot of, we see this with a lot of these duos, there's a way to boil things down and, and simplify things. And in, in the simplified version, I think Hemingway is the, the blustering, you know, he's, he is a bit of a bully. He's tougher. He's more physically courageous. He's more masculine. And he's, you know, dismisses Fitzgerald's work as being for the rich and, and being beautiful, but, uh, but doomed or pathetic in a way that it was a waste and all of those things. And Fitzgerald was much more generous to Hemingway. But if you're a Fitzgerald person, I think in the simplified version, you're uh, less masculine, you're weaker, you're a, a victim of your own weakness. And it's all kind of unfair. The way to read both of them is to look through those stereotypes of both. But as a combination, it's really provocative and and compelling to think of the two of them knowing each other and the way that they played off each other throughout their literary careers. Yeah, I mean, the one biographer, I, I love this quote, uh, said that if Hemingway liked to kick people, Fitzgerald had a kick me sign on him. <laughs> so, That's great. You know, Hemingway, you know, they were, they, they would, uh, I think they were dying to write about each other. And they eventually really did it. Um, I, I didn't know this, but, you know, Tender is the Night is one of my favorite books, but I was doing a little digging for this, for this podcast. And I, I found that um, Tommy Barbin, who, I don't, I don't want to give up, give give away Tenders and I. I think it's a great book, but Tommy Barbin is an interesting figure. Apparently, he was he's an ex boxer. He's based on Hemingway. Okay, so I will take a pick. I'm going to go with my number two choice because it fits into this category of two equals who admire one another and whose particular strengths and skills complement each other. This is fitting in with the Hemingway Fitzgerald theme. They, the characters support each other, they bring out each other's best, and they're friends, but they might also be rivals or frenemies, and they have a, a deep and complicated relationship. I think of John Lennon and Paul McCartney as being kind of the paradigm of this type of relationship. Hemingway and Fitzgerald certainly fit. And the the two that I chose are Captain Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturan from the Patrick O'Brien books, the Master and Commander series. And for people who haven't read them, Jack Aubrey is a sea captain. This takes place during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, Aubrey is a sea captain. He's strong and virtuous and impulsive and daring, but he's also faithful to England, and he's a little bit thick sometimes. He's a small sea conservative who's grown up on on the water. He believes in discipline and fidelity, but he also understands the youthful temptations and the temptations of the body that uh, his fellow sailors have often succumbed to. And Stephen Maturan is more thoughtful. He's the ship's doctor. He's a brilliant surgeon who's ahead of his time with his practices. And then he's also an intelligence agent, which is, he speaks a lot of languages, and he's that's an interesting wrinkle in his character. He's probably more complicated than Jack Aubrey. He's secretive and melancholy. And he's he's addicted to the cocoa leaf and other medicinal <laughs> substances. He has a lot of problems. He's unluckier in love. His romance has more highs and lows. And Jack is basically steadily married. And, and that's another compliment or another a pairing between the two. And then they always kind of look out for each other. They help each other out. They don't always understand each other, but they try to and they they play music together to unwind on the ship and they respect and love each other they're a really fun team jack is always trying his best to make sure steven can get to some remote island where he can capture new species and take them home to the royal society and there's all these little touches that are that are great uh, the one i like is steven is is really a lubber who can't get onto the ship without falling into the water. And sometimes uh, Jack tolerates this, you know, but he's, he rolls his eyes every time. And sometimes when they're really in a hurry, 
Jack will order a couple of Marines to go and grab Stephen and just haul him on board. And Stephen always squawks at this. And he's, as he's being carried by these Marines onto the ship, he's squawking that he, he doesn't, it's not necessary and that he could have made it on this time. <laughs> and there's just, uh, there's a lot of affection between the two. And, and as readers, you know, they really work as characters individually. You can spend long passages with one without the other. But in the end, their friendship is kind of the engine that drives the the narrative. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, Claire Massoud, the writer, says, if you're looking for friends in literature, you, you really, you know, that's not a good reason to read. And I, I so disagree with her. A lot of people disagree with her. And I, I feel like with these two characters, um, you don't have to choose just one. It's It's kind of it's a complicated choice just to choose one because the other one then seems instantly more appealing. And I think that's, that's a testament to, to these novels that, you know, you can kind of vacillate between one or the other and just really get into Stephen and his science. And then, you know, long for that kind of action pacing that Jack provides you. Exactly. I mean, how, how, how long did you take to read all those books? I'm curious because I think, you know, one of my picks, is a long book. And I think the longer the book, um, the more the character just, you become more obsessed with the character. Yeah. So, so I read them over a period of several years and I've, I've known wow. people, I've known people who have finished the series and then immediately started reading the first book over. And it's once <laughs> you're, you know, once you get used to having that world be a part of your world, it's kind of tough to leave it mm -hmm. behind. Yeah. So my number two was um, Elena and Lila from the Elena Ferrante um, Neapolitan novels, which uh, there are three volumes. Um, I guess I should ask you if you've read all, all three. You know, they are on my list. I'm reading um, The Days of Abandonment right now. And, okay. And oh. that's one of those books where I'm, I'm about a hundred pages in and thinking I am going to have to read everything that this person has written. So those will definitely be on my list. Those are the ones everybody talks about it. The Neapolitan novels as being the ones that, that really dig into uh, Elena Ferrante's best themes and in particular, the theme of friendship. Well, but I was going to say is that I, I hate reviewers who give away major plot points. So I won't do that for your listeners or for you, but, Okay. Um, I, I, you know, I think this is probably the, the story of friendships to end all stories. It, um, it's set in Naples, 1950s, 60s, Naples. It's about two girls who um, have a friendship for 60 years or for the rest of their lives. And the kind of, the, the things they go through, they like all very close friendships. They, end up helping each other and also hurting each other and also, you know, you have feelings of schadenfreude when things go well for you and poorly for your friend. Um, as long as they don't die, you know, you, you stretch the limits of your, your competitiveness with, with a close friend. And, um, and it, it's such an exploration of, uh, of being social, thinking about another person. Like, how much can you really think about another person? I always say that people care, but people care for like 15 minutes and they're kind of on to the next thing. You know, even your, even your mother and you tell her something, you, she'll listen closely and then she's already thinking of something else, like, you know, the hedge trimmer. And so here you have a book that kind of explores every way a friendship can be emotional and also kind of userist and just something to be ignored even. So it, it, it's just an incredible book. And I, I read it in English and now I'm reading it in French. It's probably one of the best books I've read in the last 10 years. And it, it has the kind of feeling I, I felt when I was reading 2666 by Robert Roberto Polano. And um, yeah, I, I recommend it to everyone who, anyone who hasn't read it yet. That's a great choice. I'm I'm can't wait to read it. And maybe we should do a show on Elena Ferrante after we've after I've read some more. You know that I saw an article a few days ago that some Italian professor thinks he has discovered who Elena Ferrante really is. For those who 
are new to her, she's kind of astoundingly been able to maintain anonymity. Elena Ferrante is a pseudonym. And in this day and age with the internet and everything, to think that somebody could come out with as many books as she has that have been as well-regarded as they are, and to think that it's still a mystery as to what her real identity is. Some people think it's a a man writing as a woman, and there's all these different theories about who it could be. But one of the things that's interesting is whether this matters to us. Yeah, I sort of don't want to know, and and especially yeah. if if that's her choice. I prefer to respect her privacy. I'm guessing in 50 years we'll know all about who she really was and who her friendship, you know, which real-life person it was based on and all of those things. I don't know that that's going to improve the experience of for the reader. Yeah, I mean, we, we should definitely do a separate show about her. Well, one interesting thing by with her anonymity is that her translator, Anne Goldstein, who learned Italian in her late 30s with uh, two of her friends. She works at the New Yorker. She learned Italian with a couple of her friends back when the New Yorker used to pay for you to learn a foreign language. Um, Just to, you know, as a hobby, and then became uh, really, really facile at it. And, you know, she became Elena Ferrante's translator. So the flip side to this anonymity is that Anne Goldstein has become this champion of translation. Right. Like there's so many readings where she shows up because people are desperate to touch anything touched by Elena Ferrante and, and Goldstein, who is a very nice person. Um, she, she gets up there and talks about translation and Ferrante and, you know, people, translators are coming out of the woodwork and saying like, this is like a, finally a moment for translators to talk about, you know, the difficulties of translating and how much freedom and, freedom they have. So that's been a nice little twist. Right. It it kind of reminds me of when I was living in Italy and everything on television and all the movies were dubbed and the voices of famous American actors, the, the people who were, you know, hired to do the dubbing for those people like Robert De Niro, or I guess in the old days, Marilyn Monroe or people like that, they became like celebrities in their own right. And they would appear on talk shows and and thinks when a new movie would come out because the Italians couldn't get Robert De Niro to sit down for the interview. So they would have Robert De Niro's voice who would sit down for the interview. And it was this, I guess a few of them had identity crises where they <laughs> they sort wow. of lost track of who they were and everything. But you're right about Anne Goldstein. And the translations are wonderful. I mean, Anne Goldstein is, she has the the ability to write. I mean, they read like, as good as any contemporary novels in English, there, uh, she's just doing a marvelous job. Yeah, and 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 another uh, one thing I'll say about Elena and Lila, just um, character-wise, because Henry and Fitzgerald, um, they're so different, but they don't exactly, they're not complementary in my mind. Elena and Lila um, are really complementary, and I think there are so many friendships like that where. Um, somebody is very good at something, one aspect, and the other one is better at another aspect. And they kind of, if not just to entertain each other, help each other improve in that in that area. And um, and I, I find friends picking one or the other, and I I I think I'm probably the only one who picks Lila. So <laughs> I'll throw that in. Whatever that whatever that says about my personality. Right. Okay, so I'm going to go with uh, something that is a slight variation on the theme that we've had so far of two equals who bring out each other's particular strengths and skills. And that is in the category of a, of a genius or a, a major figure and a loyal sidekick. Although, uh, as I was thinking through these, the, the sidekicks are often so good, they have their own claim to genius as well. And, I think I know where you're going, but the one that was um, that I didn't take was Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. And the one that I decided to choose was Dr. Johnson and Boswell, his biographer. Some others were uh, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza and a few uh, writers like Shakespeare and Ben Johnson or the composers Mozart and Salieri. But what I like Mm -hmm. about... um, Johnson and Boswell is that they are so literary. So I thought for literary duos, it's, they're kind of the definition of the term. Johnson, of course, wrote the first dictionary in the English language. 
Yeah, there's a great story that he said that he could write the dictionary in three years. That's what he figured it would take him to write in uh, an English language dictionary starting from scratch. And someone pointed out, <laughs> someone pointed out to him that it had taken 40 Frenchmen to write the first French dictionary, and it, it had taken them 40 years. And he said, ah, this is the proportion. Let me see. 40 times 40 is 1,600. As 3 to 1,600, so is the proportion of an Englishman to a Frenchman. <laughs> Of course, he didn't finish in three years. Uh, it took him eight. So he what a <laughs> what a failure. He also wrote poetry that is not really anthologized, but it's very good. He gave up writing poetry because he thought Dryden and Pope had mastered the form and that nobody could improve upon those. But his criticism and his essays are still readable, especially the literary lives that he wrote that series. But really. I think his his primary achievement is probably as a conversationalist, which is another way of saying that his you know his greatest literary triumph was probably being this character in Boswell's biography. That that's what that's what handed down Doctor Johnson throughout the ages was the portrait that Boswell portrayed of him. It's kind of like Socrates, who never wrote a word, but who had Plato to. Oh. Uh, record everything and and maybe provide his own special genius on top of it, which seems like a great way for literary duos to work. You know, which one do we attribute Socrates, the energy behind the Socratic dialogues? Do we attribute that to Socrates or attribute it to Plato? It's probably attributable to both. Uh, Johnson and Boswell are a a lot like that. Reading this book, Life of Johnson, was one of the great experiences of my life. I'm not sure I ever enjoyed a book more. It's such a a great pioneering biography, and it it makes me long for the days of dinner by candlelight and great conversations with a whole circle of of literary figures. And in the end, I really wish that I knew both of those men and Boswell's love of Johnson and and Johnson's grudging ed- admiration for Boswell. You can kind of you kind of have to read between the lines to see how much affection Johnson has for Boswell, and just Johnson's wit and his judgments, and Johnson and Boswell's love for literature and theater and poetry. And this this book, Mike, it's English major cocaine. Boy, I have not read it. I it's it's. It was on my list, and I have to say it's it's kind of slipped off the list. But I, I'll put it back on. I, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I hear so much about it, and it's uh, it's it's a, it's a real black mark on my report card. <laughs> I think I've been uh, recommending I, it to you for twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> I know you. There was a. I know you took that class at U Chicago. Usually, um, they they only. It's rare to have a class focus on just one book, and it's a uh, you know that, that in in a way that's that's really the way to do a book like that, or you know, a book like Ulysses. Right, and you read as you're reading the book, you start reading about all these characters in the book, and you think, oh, I wish I I need to read some Edmund Burke to understand more about who this person is, or you want to read uh, Tristram Shandy, or. Uh, all the other all the other works that they talk about or that they're they're meeting the authors and having some kind of encounter and Johnson is always getting the best of everybody. It's yeah. fun. Okay, there we go. It's fun. <laughs> that is some trenchant literary analysis. You won't get that from Harold Bloom. And if you do, don't trust it. His idea of fun is reciting Milton backwards. Ever tried that at a party? Total buzzkill. That was part one of our Literary Duos draft. We'll be back next time with the second half of the draft. My thanks to Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who was as thoughtful as ever. A black mark on his report card. Poor Mike. I'll give him an A. Then again, I was always an easy grader. My thanks to listener EF, who sent in the question about the syllabus. Good luck with the class. I hope our ideas were helpful. 
You can send in your questions at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Or you can leave me a comment at jackwilson.com or historyofliterature.com. My thanks also to Mr. Hotwing. I hope you're still swimming around happily, breathing and eating as normally as you can. And to Brian Palmiero, American hero, who made it all possible. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time.